This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. It's great to be back for a new season in 2022, and with a new season comes a new host. I'm Nick Wasilian, and to kick us off this year, I'm thrilled to bring you a special chat between Booktopia's Stefania Kapunya and award-winning journalist Johan Hari, author of Stolen Focus, Booktopia's pick for Book of the Month for January 2022. Now over to Stefania for her conversation with Johan Hari. I'm Stefania Caponia, Booktopia's non-fiction category manager. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with journalist and best-selling author of Chasing the Strain and Lost Connections, Johan Hari. Johan is joining us from London this morning to discuss his latest book and our January Book of the Month, Stolen Focus. Hi, Johan. You know, it's funny, whenever I speak to Australians, because I absolutely love Australia, I have this weird memory which makes me think that I have bizarre supernatural powers in Australia. Could this bizarre thing happened to me the very first time I came? So I was, I flew from London and I was absolutely fucked with jet lag when I landed. I was like completely incoherent. I hadn't been able to sleep on the flight. I hadn't been able to sleep on the layover. I landed and I had to, I, did, I thought I had some time before I was doing speeches. So one of the first things I did was speak at the Sydney Opera House when I was like almost delirious with jet lag, right? Um, so I go and I thought, oh, I'll make a joke when I start, right? So I said um, to the audience, I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I'm really disappointed with Australia uh, because I grew up with my grandmother and me would religiously watch Sons and Daughters. And uh, for younger, for younger uh, listeners who don't remember this, <clears throat> Sons, and daughters, uh, <laughs> Sons and Daughters is like a Tolstoyan epic yes. about um, Australian life. It was a soap opera made in the 70s. And I made this slightly lame joke where I said, um, you know, but uh, so that all my p- mental picture of Australia when I was a kid came from sons and daughters mainly and a country practice. And I said, but I've, um, but I've now been here for like, you know, a day and at no point have I been kidnapped and replaced by an identical twin I didn't know existed, right? Um, so I'm really disappointed in all of you and you know they laughed slightly and then uh, I made a further joke which did not go well where I said um, so the guy who made this show is called Reg Grundy and I said um, what well, is Reg Grundy still alive and someone in the audience said yeah and I said well God should strike Reg Grundy dead for the way he misrepresented your country right it was like an awkward moment and um, anyway not very long afterwards I turned on the television and Reg Grundy had died and I was like, so I now feel like when I speak to Australian audiences, I have the power to just strike your public figures dead. Oh, no. If I, if it's I like call people who you mentioned, right? Well, this is why, this is why I'm always tempted to ask Australians. So, is Tony Abbott still alive? Oh. <laughs> I'm not going to use my powers. Don't worry. I'll hold back. I'll hold back. Um, so look, before we we started, we we're speaking about this book, and I was saying that I had hundreds of questions because there's <laughs> so much that you've packed into this book. Each chapter could really be a podcast on its own. <laughs> so I was really challenged to come up with how am I going to get some um, some talking points out of this. So I think maybe the first thing to start with is maybe if you can give us an elevator pitch of what focus is and why it's so important that we're losing it. Yeah, this is, a re- this is exactly the question that I was trying to explore in the book because I noticed for a long time that my own ability to pay attention and focus 
was, was getting worse. And I noticed it seemed to be happening to lots of the people around me. I started looking at some of the research. I was quite struck by the fact that the average office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. That seems to be a hugely rising problem with children. For every, for every one child who was diagnosed with severe attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now 100 children given that, that diagnosis. And it felt like with each year that passed, doing things that required deep focus was more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I would mainly respond by blaming myself, by saying, well, this is just, you know, you just don't have enough willpower, you're not strong enough. Um, but actually, it was looking at the young people in my life, a lot of them, a lot of whom seemed to be kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, you know, where nothing still or serious could touch them. It made me think, I don't think, maybe this isn't just a failure of personal willpower. Maybe there's something bigger going on here. So I decided to go on this big journey um, all over the world, including actually one of the breakthroughs for me was in Australia. Uh, I went from, um, you know, Moscow to Miami to Melbourne um, to interview over 200 of the leading experts in the world about what boosts attention and focus and what causes attention and focus to get worse. And I learned that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that affect your attention. And many of those factors that make it worse have been going off a cliff in the last few years. They've been hugely increasing. And I, and I learned, I came to believe that we are in a very serious attention crisis and that we're going to have to deal with. And, and, and your attention did not collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you. But I think you went to the heart of it though, which is how do we define attention and why does this matter? So the, generally the way you define attention is your ability to pay attention is your ability to selectively attend to something in the environment. So think about something as simple as I'm talking to you from my, uh, the living room in my house. Um, okay, I can hear the radiator over there is making a noise. Out the window, I can see there's people walking by. In fact, I, I can literally see one of my neighbours who I know. Uh, I, I, I've got the television over there. I could have left that switched on. But I'm filtering out all of it. I've got my books around me. I've, I'm filtering all that out. I'm listening to you. All right. Steph Stefani is, is asking me questions, right? I, I'm plugging into you. Attention breaks down when you can't selectively attend, right? If I was looking at my text messages now while talking to you, if there was a glowing screen in the corner, oh, oh, who's trying to talk to me? What's happening? That would be a, one example of the breakdown of attention. And the reason this is so important, I mean, there's so many reasons why this matters. But one is, I would just say to anyone listening, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life, whether it's setting up a business, learning to play the guitar well, being a good parent, whatever it might be, that thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when focus and attention break down, our ability to achieve our goals breaks down. Our ability to solve our problems breaks down. Now that's true at an individual level, and that's true at a collective level as well, at the level of a society. It becomes a society of people who are struggling to pay attention will find it harder to solve the problems as well. So I think this is really, I came to think that actually this crisis, whatever your priority is in your own life or in the society, we've got to get our attention right first. Because if we can't get that right, we can't, we can't do anything. It's like having a car that won't steer properly. So was there um, an actual catalyst or a moment where that was heightened where you thought this is yeah. where I need to start researching the book. There was one moment because I've been thinking about this subject and I was in some ways afraid of looking into it. 
And there was a, mo a personal moment for me that made me then go on this journey to meet all these scientists and learn all the science of this. And it was, it's funny, it happened, you can't see because of the direction my laptop's facing, but it happened just in that corner in my room, this room. Um, so when he was nine years old, my, my, my godson, Adam, developed this brief but freakishly intense obsession with Elvis. I never understood why. And it was especially cute because he, he was so young, he didn't know that Elvis had become like a cheesy cliche. So he was doing it with like that heart catching sincerity you get with <laughs> little kids when they think they're being cool. And um, so he would kind of go around singing, it only lasted about a week or two, but he would go around singing Suspicious Minds and Viva Las Vegas. And, and um, he kept getting me to tell him the story of Elvis's life. And I tried to skip over the bit at the end where he sort of shits himself to death on the toilet. Um, and one night I was tucking him in and he looked at me super intensely and he said, uh, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I said, yeah, sure. In the way that you give promises to nine-year-olds knowing that they'll just forget them the next day, right? And he's like, no, really, do you swear you will take me to Graceland? And I was like, I swear I'll take you to Graceland. And I never thought of it again until 10 years later when so many things had gone wrong. So by then, Adam was 19. Um, and he dropped out of school when he was 15. And he just seemed to spend his entire life alternating between his iPad and his iPhone in this kind of blur of WhatsApp, Snapchat, porn, YouTube. And we were sitting on that sofa there. And I was trying to get a conversation with him going for a whole afternoon. And it was just like nothing could gain any traction in his mind. And I was, if I'm honest, I was kind of disgusted at myself because I was sitting there on my own devices, right? And I just, I just kept thinking, this is no way to live, right? This is, and I suddenly remembered this moment all those years before. And I said to him, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, what, what are you talking about? He didn't even remember this Elvis obsession, right? I was like, no, let, let's, go to, let's go to Graceland. Let, and I, what I wanted to do was to break this numbing routine. So I said to him, look, let's go away. We'll go all over the South. There's one condition, you've got to, when we're there, you've got to leave your phone in the hotel during the day. Yeah, he's like, okay, that. I'll do it. <laughs> he's like, okay, I promise I'll do it. So <laughs> you, you're wiser than I am. And you see where the story's <laughs> going. So we, um, we flew, two weeks later, we flew to New Orleans. That's where we went first. Anyway, a little while after that, we arrived in, in Memphis. And, and when you arrive at the gates of Graceland, uh, this is even before COVID, there's no person to show you around. The way it works is there's a, uh, they hand you an iPad. And you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right. It explains the room you're in. And everywhere you go, there's a digital representation of that room on the iPad. So what happens is everyone walks around Graceland staring at their iPad, right? So we're doing this and I'm getting more and more tense trying to make eye contact with people to sort of go, isn't this bizarre? And then we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room in Graceland. And there's a Canadian couple next to me and the husband turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I burst out laughing because I thought he was joking. And then I just realized his wife was going, oh yeah, she's swiping left and right. And I turned to them and I said, hey, but sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. You could just turn your head because we're actually in the jungle room, right? Like you don't need to look at a digital representation we're actually there, look. And they sort of clearly thought I was insane and backed away. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was in the corner of the room looking at Snapchat because from the minute we landed, he 
just could not stop looking at his phone. And I went up to him and, and I, I tried to snatch the phone off him, which many parents I know have tried to do in many contexts. And I said, you know, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not showing up to your own life. You're not being present at your own life. This is no way to live. And he stormed off, understandably. So I kind of stomped around the rest of Graceland on my own. And that night, I found him in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying, which is across the street, next to the swimming pool, which is shaped like a guitar. And he was sitting there looking at his phone. And I apologized to him for getting so angry. And he just kept looking at his phone and he said, I know something's really wrong, but I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to investigate this now. Mm. Yeah, so after that incident, you decide to completely detox from digital devices and you go off for three months. What was that experience like? You know, it's funny because at that time, I thought, this was purely an individual problem for me, right? And, yeah. and for everyone else. It's an individual failing on everyone's part. We just don't have enough willpower, whatever it might be. I later learned that there's a much more complex yeah, yeah. picture to this. So because I thought, oh, well, this is an individual problem, I thought, right, I need an individual solution. So I decided to do this very drastic thing. I, um, I just, I, it was when I came back from Memphis, I was just disgusted at myself, at everything that I was seeing happening. And I just said to everyone, you know what, I'm going to go away for three months I'm going to take three months completely off the internet. I'm going to have, uh, my, my friend Imtiaz had this broken old laptop that couldn't get online. And I'm going to have a phone that can't access the internet. And I'm just tired of being wired. I'm out of here. So I considered going to Byron Bay, actually. But in the end, I went to a place called Provincetown, uh, which is in Cape Cod. Uh, and for people who, who don't know Provincetown, it's a, it's a sort of gay beach town at the very tip of the United States. Its slogan is just the tip, which I've always loved. Um, and um, unofficial slogan, I should say. That's not the town motto. Um, and it, it's an amazing place. Um, it's the kind of place where, I mean, it's an acquired taste, but it's the kind of place where more than one person makes a full-time living by dressing as Ursula, the villain from The Little Mermaid, and singing songs about cunnilingus. Uh, that's, that's like, it's like a niche industry in Burnstown. Um, So I went there, and lots of things happened to me in those three months off the internet. Um, and actually, I realized that there were lots of other changes that happened to me in those three months that boosted my attention that were not just being free from the internet. And we can talk about that if you like. Um, but what amazed me is there were some ups and downs that I talk about in the book, but what astonished me was how much my attention came back. I thought, yeah, I'm getting older, I was nearly 40. You know, presumably your brain just deteriorates as you get older. Maybe that's just what's happening to me. And my attention went back to what it had been when I was 16. I could read a book for eight hours a day straight through, not feel a lapse in concentration. Um, I, 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 my, my, my attention just radically improved. Now, there were, I later learned when I went and interviewed lots of scientists about attention, some of the reasons why that happened. I'll give you an example of one. I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, just across the water from Provincetown in Cambridge, and, um, and, and I interviewed a man named Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world. And he said to me, look, you've got to understand one thing about the human brain more than anything else. You can only think about one thing at a time. That's it, right? One or two at most. Consciously, you can only think about one or two things at a time. Um, this is just a fundamental... is a myth, right? Well, exactly. Well, this is... Yeah. 
And this is just a fundamental limitation of the yeah. human brain. The human brain has not changed in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change on any time scale any of us are going to see. <laughs> but what's happened is we've fallen for a mass delusion. Mm. The average teenager believes they can follow seven forms of media at the same time. My God, some would be a good example. So what happens is scientists get people into labs and they get them to think they're doing lots of things at the same time. And what they discover is when you think you're doing lots of things at the same time, you're actually juggling very rapidly between them. Now your consciousness kind of papers it over. You don't know, you think you're doing lots of things at the same time. But that comes with a really big cost, a series of costs. The biggest one is called, the, the psychological term is called the switch cost effect. It turns out when you try and do two things, three things, four things at the same time, you do all of them much more badly. You significantly diminish your ability to do those things. You'll also remember the things you do less well. You make a lot more mistakes. Um, you'll be less creative in what you do. And there was a, a study, there's loads of research that's proved this. It's in psychology textbooks. It's a kind of um, extremely well-proven phenomenon. But there's one experiment that really, uh, one of the smaller ones that really landed this for me, where the you know the printer company Hewlett Packard yeah they they got in a scientist to study this and he split a group of their workers into two and one of them was told just get on with whatever your task is for the day and you're not going to be interrupted and the second group was told do your task and you're going to have to answer lots of phone calls and emails so you know barely normal for our lives and then at the end of it they tested the IQ of all of them and the people who had been distracted scored 10 IQ points lower than the people who hadn't. To give you a sense of the scale of that, if you and me smoked a fat spliff together now, our IQs would go down by five points. So being chronically distracted in the short term, there's a debate about the longer term, in the short term was twice as bad for you as, as getting stoned. So you'll be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time than you would sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and just being constantly interrupted. But we most of us now live with these constant interruptions uh, professor michael posner at the university of oregon discovered that if you are interrupted it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the same level of focus that you had before you were interrupted but a lot of us never get 23 minutes spare this is why professor miller the guy at mit said to me we are living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation and i realized oh in provincetown one of the reasons one of many reasons but one of the reasons why my attention came back it's because I wasn't being interrupted, right? I suddenly, for the first time in 15 years, I wasn't being constantly pulled, yanked out of my thought process all the time, right? And that's one of the reasons, stress not the only one, why my attention came back. So Yeah, so that, that leads into the idea of flow and um, this, this idea of mind wandering. So I've noticed there's been a few a few other books that have been mentioning it. So it is something that people are discussing at the moment. So what is flow and what's mind wandering? Yeah, so- and why is it important? So I came to flow actually in Provincetown thinking a lot about flow and then interviewing the, the leading scientist on this later, obviously, um, because I had this interesting moment where having had this kind of recovery of my attention, I had a real crush in Provincetown. I remember one day walking down the beach and seeing exactly what I saw in Memphis, people just staring at their screens. Provincetown is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And people either just staring at their screens or only using Provincetown as like a backdrop for a selfie and then going back to their screens. 
but then but at that point instead of going going oh you're wasting your lives i wanted to go up to them and snatch the phones off them and go no give me that mine right because <laughs> i felt this sudden enormous craving for these rewards that we get from these these apps this is a very pretentious way of putting it but the french philosopher simone de beauvoir much better philosopher than her husband jean paul sartre partner jean paul sartre um said that when she became an atheist it was like the world had gone silent and i felt like when i was deprived of all these signals i initially felt this huge relief and then it felt like the world had gone silent I had been acculturated for so long to getting these thin, insistent rewards, and no one in an ordinary conversation floods you with hearts, right? And suddenly, and I realized what had happened is when I had got rid of these things that, that one, of the, one of the 12 factors that I write about in Style and Focus that distract you, um, I'd actually created a vacuum where these signals were, and I needed to fill that with something meaningful if I was gonna be able to stay away from distraction. And, and so I started to think a lot about the science of flow, which I'd learned about before. Um, and a flow state, everyone listening will have experienced a flow state. A flow state is when you're doing something that's really meaningful to you and you just totally get into the zone and time falls away and your sense of ego falls away and you can just pay attention to it really easily. It's not like studying for an exam. Oh, how do I memorize this? You're just in it, right? And then when it ends, you're sort of like, oh, wow. You feel this kind of great feeling of having achieved something. The way one rock climber put it is, it's like flow is when you become the rock you're climbing, right? And everyone has different things to get them into flow. For you, it might be making bagels, playing the guitar, doing brain surgery. For me, it would be writing, sometimes speaking. Everyone has a different thing. Um, and flow is really important for the debate about attention because flow states are the deepest form of attention that human beings can provide. And even more importantly, they're the moment when attention comes most easily. So I want to think about, okay, if this is a gusher of easy attention within all of us, how do we get it? So I went to interview Professor Mahali Cheek Sent Me Hai, who is the person who first coined the concept flow states and studied them for 50 years. Sadly, he died shortly afterwards. I think I'm pretty sure I did the last interview with him. He's a completely extraordinary man. And he discovered a huge number of things about, about um, flow states. But I think there's three that are particularly important for people who want to improve their focus and attention. And this is my view. He would have, he would have given a much longer list. There's, there's sort of three things that can help you to get into that zone, uh, maximize your chances of getting into a flow state, though there's no guarantee. The first is you've got to choose one clear goal and stick to it, right? I want to paint this canvas. I want to climb this rock. If you're trying to do loads of things at the same time, you'll never get into flow. The second thing is you have to choose a goal that is meaningful to you, right? If it's not meaningful to you, your attention will just slip and slide off it. So your goal, your, your flow might be playing the guitar, but if I tried to do it, it would just sound like a cat was being killed. I wouldn't get into flow, right? The third thing is it hugely helps if you choose something that's at the edge of your abilities, at the edge of your comfort zone. So let's say you're a rock climber, a medium talent rock climber. You don't want to just clamber over your garden wall. That's not a challenge. That's not going to get you into flow. Equally, you don't want to try and climb Mount Kilimanjaro straight away that's going to just overwhelm you. You're going to freak out. You won't get into flow. What you want is a rock face that's slightly higher and harder than the last one you climbed. When you're being challenged, when you're being pushed, but you're still in the zone of something you can feasibly do, that's when you're most likely to get into flow. So that really helped me. So now, often when I can't focus, I mean, there's many techniques I use, but one is I'll say, okay, how can I get into flow? how can I maximize my chance of getting to vote? Okay, choose, choose one clear goal, choose a meaningful goal, 
and choose one at the edge of your abilities. You asked about another one, mind wandering, which is of all the things I learned about in the book, I think this is the one that was most unexpected to me. Mm. So when I went to Provincetown, I thought I was going there entirely so that I could focus more on uh, what's called spotlight focus. So spotlight focus is, you know, reading a book is a spotlight focus, right? You, you, you narrow down to one thing and you just, you know, you filter out everything else and you can read the book for eight hours or however long you want to read it for. Um, but after I'd been, and, and that obviously did massively improve in Provincetown. But actually, when, I remember it was about a month in, I started just going for these really long walks along the beach without, so I, I didn't have a phone obviously, but I, I'd brought an iPod with me. And it's funny, whenever I would turn on my headphones, they, 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 they would say, searching for Johan's iPhone, searching for Johan's iPhone. And they would go, connection cannot be made. Um, but, but I would go for these long walks and I started just initially for that first month, I was listening to audiobooks. It was like I was trying to fatten myself with information all the time. And, and then I just started decided, you know, I'm going to just leave this. I'm not going to take that with me. And I started going for these long walks and I noticed that my creativity was just hugely improving and that my mind was sort of connecting things in ways it hadn't before when I was just leaving all stimulus behind. And at first I felt quite guilty about that. I was like, well, but that's not why you came here. You came here to focus more, not to let your mind just wander. But later I, I, I met the people who've pioneered the study of mind, the science of mind wandering. And people like Professor Marcus Reichel, a completely incredible man who is at the um, University of Washington in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and, and, and they taught me that actually mind wandering is a really important uh, part of being psychologically healthy. Just letting your brain focus without focusing on any stimuli or without being distracted is a, is a space in which you begin to make connections between the things you've experienced. It's when you begin to make sense of the past. It's when you begin to anticipate the future is absolutely an essential part of thinking. Um, and it's, it's the source of our creativity amongst other things and, the, and a big part of our problem solving. But the problem is at the moment, we're in the worst of all possible worlds where we're, we're, we're a lot, most of the time, we're neither focusing nor are we mind wandering. We're just jammed up with switching very rapidly between tasks. What was just on WhatsApp? What was just on Facebook? Wait, what's he saying on the television? What happened there? Oh my God, what's happened on Twitter? We're just jammed up. So we're getting neither of these necessary, I mean, we're getting some of it, but we're getting much less than we need of these necessary forms of thinking. So yeah, one of the biggest things I took from my experience in Provincetown was actually every day I go for a walk without my phone, without anything to distract me uh, for at least an hour. And those are often the most creative and fertile. I'll come back and just my mind is so much clearer, but also I've come, that's often when I come up with my best ideas, my best lines, the best ways of thinking about what, what I should do next. As someone who went to art school, I can, I can contest to that. So oh, really? Like, that's yes, yes. It's like when you're not thinking, that's when the ideas come to you. Right. That's yeah. so interesting because that's, that's exactly what Professor Marcus Reichel showed. And he obviously did a lot of brain research to show this because it used to be thought when you're not directly focusing on something, your brain is like inert. It's a bit like, you know, I'm not using my arm muscles now, 
they're inert actually as you can probably tell i don't use my arm muscles very much ever um the and it used to be thought oh when you're not you know directly focusing your brain is a bit like your inert muscles it's not really doing much but actually what he showed using pet scans is actually a part of your brain called the default mode network becomes highly active when you appear to not be thinking about anything your brain is just as active it's just active in a different way yeah. and exactly those things about moments of artistic insight scientific insight or just breakthroughs in thinking about your life usually happen at exactly that moment when you're not trying to solve that problem but we've really deprived ourselves of those spaces in our culture right we're constantly yeah. i mean look at anyone you know i just say to one next time you're in a queue in i was always looking down like that Always. Exactly. Everyone, right? It, I mean, it's really striking. Almost literally everyone is doing that. With the spaces in which we would ordinarily mind wander are gone, and that will drain our creativity yeah. and make us more brittle. Yeah. No, I totally, like, reading that chapter, I really related to a lot of that. Even just mm. sitting, my favourite thing is sitting in a cafe and just watching people pass, walk past. But people don't do that. If they're sitting in a cafe on their own, they can't do that. They have to have the phone with them yeah. and looking at something, right? Totally, totally. Um, so speaking of phones and technology, um, I think the, the chapters that you discuss, the rise of technology, I think are some of the most frightening things in the book. Um, I think we, we all understand how much technology has taken over our lives. Um, and also a lot of the people in the tech industry have described it, they've paralleled it to Frankenstein's monsters, right? You even mentioned it in the book, these monsters that are, mm. are now out of control. Um, you, you met with someone called Tristan Harris, who if, if people have watched the show The Social Dilemma on Netflix, they'll know who he is. Um, and I remember watching that documentary where he starts talking about how he used magician's tricks to help him to um, work his work at Google. So tell us a little bit about who this person is and his journey to becoming, now I don't know if I'm going to get his title right, he's a design ethicist now. So who is he? Tristan Harris is one of the most important people in the world at the moment and an absolute hero as far as I'm concerned. Um, so uh, just before I say something about him, I would just say it was really interesting because when when I said to people, I'm writing a book about our attention problems, very often they'd say, oh, you're writing a book about smartphones, right? And one of the things that surprised me in the research is of, of the 12 factors that are degrading our attention, actually invasive technology is not the biggest. It's a huge factor. It's a disaster. There's a lot that we can practically do about it um, to protect ourselves and to take on these companies to regulate them. But actually, I don't think it's the biggest, um, which surprised me, even though it's huge. So Tristan, as you say, really important figure. So Tristan, when he was a little boy growing up in Santa Rosa in California, loved, was obsessed with magic, right? And he got sent to a magic training camp, uh, which he, to his mind was like a Jedi training camp, right? When he was a little boy. In the, in the, um, and what he learned about magic is magic is all about the manipulation of your attention right so i'm completely crap at magic so i couldn't do this but when someone for example you think about a classic trick you make the a coin appear to disappear right the coin doesn't disappear what happens is the magician manipulates your attention to guarantee that you're looking somewhere else at the moment when he moves the coin right and all magic is to some degree about manipulation of attention 
you're not looking in the right place. Now, obviously, that's a manipulation of our attention designed to delight us. Um, but when Tristan became a crucial figure in Silicon Valley, he realized that in a similar way, the whole of the current machinery of social media is about manipulating our attention, right? Now, in their case, it's to make the coin disappear from, you know, in, into their pockets because they make money through doing this, right? But um, that every moment that you scroll, every time you pick up and open these apps, they make more money and every time you put them down, they lose money. This is why Sean Parker, one of the key first investors in Facebook said, um, you know, we designed it to maximally invade your attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids' brains. That's what he said, right? And so Tristan became a figure at the absolute heart of this machine. He, uh, he worked on the creation of Gmail. And he had this moment, he had this increasing sense of dread because his own attention was being ruined by checking Gmail all the time. And, and one day he was in the Googleplex well, this might have been before the Googleplex was invented. It was in Google HQ. And one of his colleagues said, oh, I've got an idea. Because they were trying to get people to use Gmail more often, not just for longer, because they make more money that way. Um, so he said, oh, I've got an idea. Why don't we make it so that every time someone receives a new email, their phone vibrates a little bit? Um, and everyone said, oh, that's a really good idea. And a week later... Tristan was walking around San Francisco and he just heard these vibrations everywhere. And he suddenly, like, like a kind of weird bird song. And he suddenly thought, oh shit, we did that. That's us. He did a calculation a little while later. That decision alone was resulting in 10 billion interruptions to people's day every day all over the world. 10 billion, right? And he was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with this, as were many of the people at the heart of the machinery. One of Tristan's friends, a wonderful man named Dr. James Williams, who had been a key strategist at Google as well, um, spoke at one point at a tech conference. And he asked the audience, and these are the people designing the things that obsess, that, 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 that my godson was looking at in Graceland. He said to them, if there's anybody here who wants to live in the world that we're creating, put up your hand now. And not one person put up their hand. So it really is like Frankenstein's monster, people being consumed by their own creation. Uh, which is not to say there aren't also good things about these technologies. Oh, yeah. There are. Um, and so Tristan, James, a whole group of these dissidents within Silicon Valley quit and started publicly advocating for the solutions to these problems. Now, to, now there's got two levels at which we've got to solve all of the 12 factors that are degrading our attention. Actually, one of them can, can't be solved this way, but for, for 11 of them, there's got to be two levels. You've got to have, um, we've got to personally protect ourselves and our children. And there's all sorts of techniques we can use to do that. And I talk about many of them in the book. To give you a very simple example, in the corner of the room over there, you can't see it from this angle. I've got something called a K-safe. It's a small plastic yep. safe. You take off the lid, you put your phone in, you put the lid on, you turn the dial, and it will lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a day. I use it four hours a day, gives me space, just free from distraction. Um, and there's lots of other techniques like that. But we've got to level with people, that will only get you so far. Because the truth is, at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over all of us all the time. And then they're leaning forward, that person and going, do you know what, mate? Um, you might want to learn how to meditate, then you wouldn't scratch so much. And it's like, mm, 
okay, I mean, yes, meditation is good, but we need to stop you from pouring itching powder on us. So, and there's really, and there's very targeted ways. And there's an analogy that was explained to me by Jaron Lanier, another great Silicon Valley dissident, that really helped me to think about this. Because there is a precedent for this. In the 1970s, you'll, I think you, you might remember this. In the 1970s, it was common for people to paint their homes with lead paint and we use leaded petrol in our cars. I remember leaded petrol, I remember my mum putting it in her mini. Um, and it was discovered, it was actually known for a really long time from the 1920s onwards, that exposure to lead really damages children's brains and specifically damages their ability to focus and pay attention. The lead industry funded a complete fake science to deny it, but actually by the 70s, the evidence was so overwhelming that there began to be movements all over the world of people saying, we've got to ban leaded paint and leaded petrol. The campaign here in Britain was led by a housewife named Jill Runette who fought saying we have got to just ban leaded petrol and leaded paint. And, and so what happened? We did not ban paint. We did not ban petrol. You can see the room that I'm in has been painted. I can see cars going by outside my window. They've got petrol in their tanks. We banned the specific element that was harming our attention and focus. And there's an analogy with social media, right? Because it's not um, there's a degree to which the existence of the smartphone would have always damaged our attention to some degree. But these apps are maximally designed to invade our attention. Because, like we say, every moment you scroll, they make more money. And every moment you stop scrolling, they stop making money. So the whole thing is designed to invade your attention. But it doesn't have to work that way, right? As Aza Raskin, who invented a key part of how the internet works, said to me, look, the first step of the solution is really simple. You just ban the current business model. You say that it, you just say, just like we banned lead in paint, you say, we will not let you have a business model that is based on uh, hacking our attention and selling our attention to the highest bidder for you to make money. And I remember saying to Aza, well, okay, but well, what happens the next day when, let's say we do that ban, do I open Facebook and Twitter and just goes, sorry, we've gone fishing? He said, of course not. They would have to move to a different business model. Um, and there's very obvious business models. One is subscription, like Netflix. We pay yeah. a small amount each month. Uh, one alternative business model is um, one that everyone ha has close to them right now, which is before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets, we had cholera. So we all pay for the sewers to be built and we all own the sewers together, right? You own the sewers in Sydney. Um, yes, uh, so it becomes else more of a social yeah. thing rather exactly. than a business. So, yeah. Exactly. So just like everyone, just like we own together the sewage pipes, we might want to own the information pipes together because, um, because we're getting the equivalent of cholera for our attention. Um, so, but the crucial thing about that is once the business model changes, the incentives change. Yeah. At the moment, all the incentives for these companies are to hack and invade your attention. But they, these devices can just as, e these apps can just as easily be designed to heal your attention. Once you're the customer, instead of being the product they sell to advertisers, suddenly these companies have to think, well, what does Stefani want? Oh, Stefani wants to be able to focus. Okay, let's give her what she wants. Let's design the app to improve her attention, not to fucking raid it so that we can invade her attention and sell it to advertisers. So it's a, um, there are completely different ways these things can work. So that's part of the collective level. There's so many things we can do at an individual level, and there's so many things we can do together at a collective level, but it requires a change in our consciousness. We are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. 
we are the free citizens of democracies. We own our own minds and we can take them back from the fuckers who've stolen them from us. We can absolutely win this, but we've got to stop blaming ourselves. We've got to stop blaming our kids and we've got to start taking on the powerful forces that are doing this to us. And on that note, <laughs> unfortunately, you've got to go to another... Uh... Another, I've got, I've, yeah, I've got to do it in a couple of minutes. Can I just say, I'm so grateful to Booktopia. Oh, I, also no, thank say, you. I also want to recommend an amazing Australian book that yeah, I read last year. <laughs> it's called Return to Uluru by Mark McKenna. I cannot emphasize how brilliant this book is. I'll it's make sure we've got it on our range. So oh my God. It, it's, a, it, it's about the murder of an Aboriginal man in 1937 in Uluru. And what Mark McKenna, the historian, does is solve is figure out what actually happened at this murder in the most extraordinary way. And it becomes this incredible canvas for thinking about Australia, for thinking about the ways the first Australians have been treated. But I, I think it's really a profound and remarkable book. It, it works as a true crime book. It works as a meditation on Australian history. It works as a meditation on what it means to be human. I just absolutely love that book. And I think Australian writing just in general is completely incredible and some of the best novels i've read in the last few years the natural way of things by charlotte wood oh um, that's one of my favorites oh my god she is a genius the yeah. animals in this country there's so, australian fiction is so much better than british fiction and so alive um so yeah i'm so excited to talk to you guys and oh it was such a pleasure and i hope to see you in australia soon we Thank definitely so will and i will not use i will not use my evil powers to strike down Jenny, I, I promise <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Johan. It's been fascinating hearing all about your book. And thank you so much for that recommendation. I'll make sure that we, that we have it on our website for everyone who's been listening. Um, for everyone at home, you can grab your copy of Stolen Focus online at Booktopia. Thank you again for listening and never stop reading. Thank you, Johan and Stefania. You can order Stolen Focus, which is our book of the month for January 2022, and you can get it for a special member pricing right now throughout the month. You can find links to all books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Stay tuned on Friday for our next podcast where we'll be discussing the books that we are reading at the moment. And please join us next week as we sit down with Hugh Van Kleinberg, Paul Kennedy, and Paul Barbera. As always, thanks for listening and never stop reading.